This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn more about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co-host, Dolores Alfieri. We are bringing you another episode of the Italian American podcast today where we will talk with Carol DeFalco Radswill, journalist, author, and cast member of The Real Housewives of New York City. And of course, most importantly, she grew up in the same town as Dolores and I, <laughs> which you'll hear more about in the show. And then at the end of the show, many of you have been emailing us telling us you want to go to Italy. So we have an Italy travel expert on the show who's going to talk about some of the initial things you can do if you're just thinking, I want to go to Italy, where you can start. So yeah, this was a really interesting episode. Uh, Dolores and I grew up in a very small town of Suffern, New York, and the fact that someone as, as famous as Carol was from there, I think is, is pretty cool, and we got into that in the interview, which we're going to jump into here. But before we do that, we'd like to offer a brief word from our sponsor, the National Italian American Foundation. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. At NEF, we see ourselves as the leaders of the Italian-American community, and we work hard to protect our great heritage, to promote the Italian language, to build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and to serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, our work provides young Italian-Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming future leaders for our community. To find out more about how your support serves the community, Visit us online at www.niaf.org and become a part of the NIAF family. This is Julia Streisfeld, Assistant Director of Programs for the National Italian American Foundation, and here is your NIAF news. We want you to be a part of the nation's premier Italian American event on the weekend of October 14th through 15th, 2016 at the Washington Marriott Wardman Park Hotel. This year, we will be celebrating our 41st anniversary as well as our 2016 Region of Honor Piemonte. We are excited to be honoring an impressive list, which includes the directors of Captain America and the Avengers movies, Joe and Anthony Russo, as well as former Pittsburgh Steeler and Pro Football Hall of Famer Franco Harris. The weekend will include a showcase of the best Italian-American culture through cooking demonstrations, classes, and a conference with the Russo brothers at our annual Expo Italiana and first NIAF University. Tickets are on sale now. Register today before it's too late. Corporate and individual sponsorships are still available. More details are at www.niaf.org 41. Now I'd like to introduce our guest for today. Carol DeFalco Radswill is an Emmy Award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author, as well as a cast member of the hit Bravo TV series, The Real Housewives of New York City. 
Her first book, a memoir entitled What Remains, traces her life from a child growing up in a boisterous working-class family in upstate New York to her start in journalism through her marriage to fellow ABC News producer Anthony Radswill, the son of socialite actress Caroline Lee Bouvier, younger sister of First Lady Jacqueline Lee Bouvier, and Polish prince Stanislaw Albrecht Radswill, and the young couple's heartbreaking battle with cancer. Her second book, a novel, The Widow's Guide to Sex and Dating, was released in 2012. Carol started her career as a journalist at ABC News working for Peter Jennings' documentary unit, where she reported on stories in Cambodia, Haiti, India, and Israel. She traveled extensively on the Thai-Cambodian border reporting and filming in refugee camps and with Khmer Rouge soldiers for the award-winning documentary titled From the Killing Fields. For her journalism, she received three Emmy Awards and a Peabody Award, among other accolades. During the 2001 Afghan War, Carol spent four weeks filming with the 101st Airborne Division, stationed with an infantry unit at the U.S. military base in Kandahar. She produced segments for an ABC TV series called Profiles from the Frontline, and she lives in New York City. And now I'm going to turn over to Dolores to give us a quote to bring us into this interview. Thanks, Anthony. So this quote is from Redswill's memoir, What Remains, which is a beautiful work that I highly recommend everyone reads. It's it's not really Italian-American centric, but it's still a very beautiful book. And uh, the reason that we chose this quote is because, of course, as you'll hear in a minute, we talk a lot about suffering in upstate New York, which all three of us is, is where we grew up. And uh, Carol talks a lot about her work ethic and how relentless hard work got her to where she is. And we talk about that a lot on our show, of course. So this is why we picked uh, this quote. And it is, when I think of suffering, I think of longing for something else. I think of Chris Nucci sitting on the hurdy-gurdy in Kingston after I've just started an internship at ABC asking, who do you think you are, Barbara Walters? The question was rhetorical and wrapped in a sneer that suggested a girl from Suffren had no business being there. I was embarrassed, but I thought he was probably right. Who do you think you are? Now it's time for the main segment of our episode, and we're absolutely delighted to welcome Carol DeFalco Radswell to the Italian American Podcast. Carol, welcome. Hi. So nice to hear that DeFalco in the middle of my name. <laughs> I rarely hear it anymore. We have to remind people that you're Italian. That's our job. I know. I know. <laughs> One thing that's actually really exciting uh, in this particular episode, of course, all three of us grew up in Suffern, New York. That's right. Which oh, no, you're kidding. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know that. Where did, you, where did you guys grow up? So I grew up in the Lafayette Theater, Lafayette area, over there by Avon. Uh, yes, I know of that. Oh, yeah, my the God, wrong side Lafayette of the Theater. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> I don't know about that. But that Lafayette Theater is a, is a treasure. It really it? is. It really is. And I don't know if you know, but they've redid it restored it a while ago and like a new family is running it and they do vintage movies every Saturday morning. It's really amazing. That's so incredible. In that yeah. little town, it's like one or two blocks long to have that kind of like throwback to the fifties really. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
And yeah, Anthony. I grew up on Madison, uh, Madison Hill. Like that was like, you know where Airmont School used to be yeah. in the corner? Yeah, and that, sure. Now, sadly, it's like Walgreens or something. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Walgreens, yep. The yep. town's changed. Yeah, I was on like more of the Mawa side by the Foxwood Pond, Connor School, Hillside Avenue, up in that up in that area. So did you go to Suffern High School then? I actually went to Don Bosco and Ramsey. But oh, I, went yeah, I, know to, I went to Sacred Heart, though, in, in Suffern Elementary School. So. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Good old I went Catholic to Suffern. Italian. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, did you got, when did you graduate? But uh, you're so much young. You're a child. I graduated Bosco in uh, 96. So. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> did you go to Suffern High School? I went to Suffern High School, graduated in 1981. I went to the Suffern Junior High School before that which is a beautiful another treasure beautiful old high school uh, school i don't know remember the road but um i was kind of recently drove by and it is is exact as it was in the 70s when i was there so that's it's so nice to see that you you rarely get to see that anymore i was reading your uh, bio carolyn i, I read yeah. about you saying that you worked got a job at caldor and i had just like a, yeah. a just yeah. a, a bunch of memories <laughs> came back my mom lugging me and my two brothers into caldor it seemed me like too. every day every other day <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that was um it, i guess they went out of business i i, I say that they're not hiring the best and the brightest anymore when in the in the 70s yeah. when when I was working there, it was it was like the hot spot to work. And I think they're out of they're they're completely out of business now. There's just a few stores left, but I think that one now is about a Walmart or something like Kmart. Yeah, it's a Walmart. It's a huge Walmart now. It's totally different. Oh, okay. Than there. Oh, yeah, exactly. Okay, but Caldor Caldor was the precursor to those like jumbo jumbo department like cheap department Absolutely. stores. Absolutely. Yep, I agree. Yeah, Absolutely. I was cutting edge. I was cutting edge. You know. <laughs> I, had, I had a very strong work ethic, very, well, you know, Italian working class exactly. family. <laughs> so let's jump into talking a, a little bit about that aspect of your, you know, your growing up. So, of course, as we know now, you grew up in Suffren, uh, especially when yes. we were growing up. It was a smaller town. It was very working class. Can you tell us a little bit about yes. especially the Italian-American, you know, aspects of your of your upbringing? We moved there, we meaning my mom, my brothers and sisters. Being Italian, of course, I have five brothers and sisters. And Italians have a lot of kids. And I just recently asked my mother why we why she moved in 1960 to Suffern. And she said, well, all the Italians were moving there. So right. I, you know, right. <laughs> so I was like, okay. That, you know, and uh, so... So there I ended up in 1966, and, um, you know, it's funny growing up, I mean, uh, you know, DeFalco is pretty obvious Italian, but we were, but, you know, we never knew anything other. I thought, like, all families were big and loud and, and you know, boisterous and, and you know, ate pasta every day. I thought every family was like that. I think it was, like, unique to Italians, but uh, now I've come to realize that it's a very, there's a very specific Italian gene that runs through all Italian families. It's a loud gene. And it's <laughs> right. a gene that apparently 
apparently, at least in my case, allows you to eat pasta every single day and, and nothing late. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> of course, I did have an Italian grandmother who was probably like 300 pounds, so I take that back. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's funny because I, I see these articles posted about pasta doesn't make you fat, and the people will talk about how Italians are very thin, and, you know, it must be something about portions, but I don't... Growing up, most of the people mm-hmm. I knew were overweight. I'm like, it's not good yeah. for you. We, 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 we shouldn't no. be eating that much of it. <laughs> no, I think, yeah. I mean, in my family, we had a, well, I don't know. You know my, my dad, who's 100% Italian, and my mom, who is, well, she's half Italian, but she grew up thinking she was fully Austrian. So that's another story. There's a skinny gene in our family on my on my dad's side, which is Italian. But there's also he also has a fat gene because there were several like fatties, you know, uh, <laughs> on his side. I got the skinny gene, so I can actually eat pasta every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Oh, people love people and like you. <laughs> I know, you know, I know. I I do take some heat for that, but then I think you know what? God gave me uh, you know that gene. He gave me a good ass, but he gave me a bunch of other issues so it all evens out in the end. Right. So, Carol, you know, we mentioned your very illustrious and extensive and varied career in uh, our introduction. You've, of course, been Mm -hmm. an Emmy Award-winning journalist, Mm -hmm. and now, of course, you're well-known as a a writer, best-selling author, and, of course, you're on a reality television show. So, um, yes, yes. (laughs) you do a lot. Yeah. You know, as a writer myself, I'm, I'm really interested in how you went from being this award-winning journalist, you know, and a writer to kind of making that transition to decide that you're going to go on reality television. How'd that come about? Well, <laughs> well, that doesn't seem logical to you. Um, <laughs> you know, I started out growing up in Suffer and I, you know, I did love it, but I always had this feeling that I wanted to get out and see the world. You know, we didn't have much money growing up, so I thought, you know, I can't wasn't like I was going to like take my junior year abroad or do anything like that. I thought if I'm going to see the world, it's going to have to be through a career, through a job, I'm going to have to get paid. And and through evolution of all sorts of all sorts of different things that went on in my life in my late teens and during college, I decided, you know, that um, I wanted to be a journalist and be where things were happening. And and I was very passionate about that and very, very relentless in my pursuit of that all through school until finally landing a job at uh, ABC News as an intern. And that, to me, you know, I, I know I've done a bunch of other things, including a reality TV show, but I still sort of self-identify as a journalist because that was my, like, one true, you know, passion. And I did that for 15 years, and that was um, it was an incredible experience. And I, I think it's a little bit of a young person's game. It, it was a lot of travel, a lot of, you know, 10, 12 hour days. And I loved every minute of it. And, and um, through a series of events, including then uh, eventually the, the death of my husband, who I met at ABC, I decided to leave there. And after 15 years, and the transition between journalism and writing a memoir, at least, was, was fairly slow and steady. It wasn't like very jarring to me. I just thought, not that I ever thought I would write a memoir. I didn't even keep a diary or but when I sat down and I decided I was going to do that, it happened, you know, slowly over the course of three years, I think. And um, telling that story was 
was wonderful. I mean, I started telling because I was thinking, you know, I wanted to mark this time in my life with my husband, who I'd met at ABC. We'd had this whole life together. He was diagnosed with cancer and, and then eventually died from that cancer. And it was, you know, I was 34 when he died and it was a very profound experience for me. And, and I wanted to always remember that. I was thinking, God, when I'm 80, I can barely remember things now, but when I'm 80, you know, I want to have that committed to paper and, and it's kind of started that way and not even to the intent to publish it. But the fun thing about it was going back into my childhood and reliving and thinking about everything that happened in my childhood leading up to the, you know, meeting, going to ABC News and meeting my husband. Those are a lot of great stories. I, you know, wrote about my family and my extended family and my aunt, my various aunts and uncles and Dutch aunts and uncles that came in, you know, you know, Italians are very like, come, you know, come spend the night and then people will come and they spend the night and they're like three months later, they're still there and they're like, oh, <laughs> you're Uncle, Uncle Freddy, Uncle Jimmy, Uncle <laughs> They're very welcoming, you know, right. Italians, you know, so it's, yeah, come, you know, and she, you know, that bowl of pasta and sleep on the couch and then never yeah. leave. So there was a lot of that. And those stories were really fun to piece together and sort of form a narrative of what my childhood generally was like through the eyes of now being adult looking back and kind of making sense of it all. And and I love that. I love that. But to be able to do that was a gift, really, to have that now as a gift. And, and uh, I, I, you know, and the book has been out 10 years now. And, uh, you know, I haven't thumb through it in a very long time but I always think you know when I am 80 now I'm going to be able to sit back and I'm going to be able to read that and it's just going to be it's going to be really really nostalgic and wonderful and so that was really something I, and then I ended up you know liking it you know I like the I like the life of a writer because I, I like sleeping in I like anything you can do from bed I think is a really good job you know radio podcast writing yep. um <laughs> You know, it's like, why, why didn't I think of this when I was in college? And so I just kind of took to that lifestyle. And um, and I, I tend to be, you know, contrary to my current job, I tend to be very introspective and a little bit of a loner. I'm not someone who is, you know, wants to be the center of attention or life of the party. Right? I'm usually on the outskirts of a party looking, you know, observing, watching, you know, and feel more comfortable in, in that role. So that sort of came a little bit more naturally to me. And then when I was working on my second book, which was a novel, I was at a point in it where I was getting like, it was very frustrating. It was much more frustrating and much harder to write a novel than I had ever imagined. And I was living in LA and a friend of mine who created, created the show, the, the Real Housewives franchise, called and asked me if I would consider doing being a, a New York show. And um, I hadn't really even watched it. I mean, I knew Andy Cohen for a while socially, and I just knew he was doing like a talk show based on these other shows. So I thought, oh, let me watch these shows. So he sent me a few, and it was <laughs> nothing. Like, I laughed. I said, I don't think I could do this. I don't, I'm not <laughs> like these women. And he said, that's exactly why we want you to do it. So, so then I thought, I was at the point in my life where I felt like, you know, you have to say yes to whatever the universe puts in front of you, mm. even though it doesn't make sense at the time. Mm. And it took me a while to get to that point in my life because up to that point, especially after the death of my husband, I was very, like, cautious about things and changes and new things. So I just thought when he 
asked me, I just said, well, this is something that, that seems almost dangerous, so I guess I should do it because I've been a little cautious the last 10 years. <laughs> and it wasn't really much more thought than that. Like, I think, you know, it wasn't like I was, you know, I just thought, okay, well, and plus I'm a writer, so it's a really super odd job to have, you know, if you're a writer and potentially going to write about something like this, you know, in the future. Right. So there you go. And then I thought I'd do it for a couple of years. And then a couple of years turned into four years. So it's now been four years. And, and like I said, even in the beginning, I'm a single girl with bills and there's that piece of it. And writing as much as I love it, uh, isn't as lucrative as it once was. Mm. Sadly, the advances are smaller. The time between when you hand in your manuscript and they, and they publish it is getting longer and longer. And, you know, they pay out, you know, advances over now, like, you know, two or three years. So, you know, and I write slow, you know, I meander and I I don't have any kind of set schedule or anything. I sort of comes and ebbs and flows. This is a nice little gig in in between books. That's how I see it now. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you mentioned when you first saw the footage of the show, you said, you know, you laughed and you said, I'm not like these women. And I yeah. would be remiss to be speaking with you and not bring up the the obvious um, stereotype, especially in these reality television shows regarding yeah. Italian-Americans and Italian-American oh, women geez. in particular. The yeah. reason, yeah. We, yeah, one of the main reasons we, we wanted to have you on the show is because you are known for being the opposite of that. You're very, <laughs> you're very composed, well, you know. Um, yeah. I must say that there's um, the New Jersey housewives. They're all Italians, right? Yeah. You know, I, I kind of find them in, I mean, maybe because I am Italian, I have to be frankly honest. I don't watch those any of those shows with any kind of regularity. I see an episode here and there. And it's not because, like, I'm sitting, you know, I'm watching PBS or I'm watching <laughs> theater or something. Said, no, no. It's just that I don't, I don't watch them because I'm in it. So it's like I also don't watch shows about that are set in newsrooms because I just look at it. I'm like, that's so not how it happens. So when I look at these reality shows with the housewives, it's just, it's just hard to watch because I can see all the editing and I can see. Mm. You know, sometimes I'll watch because I want to see which city has better lighting or better, you know, better production values. But other than that, I don't really watch for content. But I, I must say that, yeah, Jersey is a little hot. But I don't know. I think if you look at how they act each other, and the best parts of all of these shows are when you feel like there's a genuine caring and love for for one another underneath all the bullshit drama, you know? Right. That's when it really works the best. That's when it really works the best. And I think, like, when Jersey is working the best, it's when you see that. When you see that, like any family, there's going to be drama. But when you understand that, like, underneath it all, there is a love for each other and love for family. That's how I view it, at least. On my show, no one thinks of me as an Italian, which really pisses me off. <laughs> they think this rad because... You know, Radziwill, or as, as Luann, one of the other cast members, says, Radziwill. They don't think of me as Italian, I, and, and and I have to remind people, I know I'm actually not Polish. I'm not, right. uh, you know, Polish aristocracy. I married someone who was, and therefore, hence, Radziwill. And it's been my name now. I mean, Anthony's been gone 17 years, married five, I'm a six. So it's been my name for almost as long as as DeFalco was my name. But I still feel like a DeFalco. And I still sometimes, I think, but now I really sort of can't, but I, I think 
maybe if I got remarried or something, I would change my name back to the Falco. Mm. You know, I toyed with the idea. Like I thought, this is very weird because I didn't change my name professionally when I was at ABC News, even after I married. Uh, I was always Carol DeFalco until sort of the near the end of my husband's illness. I think it became important for him. And then, of course, because of that, to me, that we share the same name. So then I officially changed my last name. We were probably married three years at that point or more. And then after he passed away, there was a moment where I thought I would just change it back because I always just felt like, you know, I was Carol DeFalco. And then I just kind of felt like it when you're in the middle of grieving and stuff, you have all these crazy ideas about things. And, and I thought it would be somehow disrespectful. So I didn't do it right away. And then of course, when I wrote my memoir, I wrote it under my name, Carol Radzville. And, and there you have it. And then soon, like a year turned into two, turned into five, turned into 10. But I now wonder... I'd love to hear, like when you introduced me as Carol DeFalco Radzville, it's like <laughs> it made me smile. Yeah. I wonder, you know, if you were more loudmouthed and aggressive on the show, I wonder if people would remember that you're Italian-American. Because <laughs> that well, seems maybe. to be the they're looking for, you know, so maybe it's... Uh, I'm going to start bringing it up. I'm going to start bringing Love it that. up. I'm like, Do don't, it. don't mess with me. I'm, you think that I'm like some Polish princess, honey. You got it wrong. <laughs> Italian. I love that. I'm an Italian. Hey, Carol, along those lines, you know, we talked about you coming from this working class family in the small town of Suffern, yeah. and then obviously you married into a family you could probably the say opposite. in a lot of ways is the opposite. And I'm just wondering, maybe you could talk about how that was for you, you know, kind of making that transition. Anthony and I met at ABC News, so he was an associate producer, I was an associate producer. So by that time, and by the time we were in a relationship, we dated for like we were together four years before we got married. So I always felt like we were the same. You know, I understood that like he spent the summers, you know, water skiing off of the Christina and the Aegean Sea in Greece. And I was working at Caldor. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of understood that to be the truth, but it never played a part in my reality with him. Like I just felt like we were too very similar people and he always used to say it doesn't really matter where you started or not where you end up and like the fact that he was always more proud of like I started from much more humble beginnings I have no connections I have no reason really to have taken that path and persevered and, and, and have been a success and it, he probably had more of a reason I mean he, he was from a more prominent family and, and at that time at ABC you know there was always like the interns were like one girl's father was Rune Arledge, who was the president of ABC News at the time, her father was his dentist. Like, there's always some connection, you know, mm. <laughs> and I was like, no one from nowhere. But Anthony loved that. He used to call my family the clan. He said, we're going to go see the clan this weekend, like <laughs> the Falco clan, <laughs> which was funny because everyone always referred to the Kennedys as the clan, you know, the right. Kennedy clan, the Kennedy clan. But it was not as, not as clannish as the DeFalcos. We were much did, more of a clan. How did he take to, you know, visiting your family in, in Suffern, New York? Um, he, it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, for, for us. No, like, I know. Kennedy walking he, into, like, my Italian-American yeah. household, you know? It's... He loved it. He, yeah. he, he loved it because there's a reason, there's a reason um, I was with him and he was with me, mm -hmm. you know, and that reason lies in that very idea that he 
went to Suffern and hung out with the DeFalco clan and was totally, you know, fine and uh, comfortable and was sort of, he was very down to earth. But, you know, he also identified growing up, he, he also had this thing about, like, you know, the really the good people. And, and it was a little noblesse, you know, like sort of a royalty thing, but I never pointed it out to him. But he always, in his mind, he would say oh, that they were good people. Mm-hmm. And they were always like the chef that worked for his family was his best friend when he was a, a child. He always would talk about the chef, and they were good people. And the, the people who worked for the family were always the good people. And it was kind of amusing when he would say those things. I was like, I understood what he meant, you know, and I do think they were good people. Of course, I'm sure people in his family were good people, too, even though they were, you know, not the workers. But so he always had a very strong affinity for people who were, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of people, working class. And so it was never really, never at all, he, he liked them. He thought they were really funny and loud and, <laughs> and characters. And, and, you know, I was, and I never thought about it until the day of our wedding, actually. <laughs> wow. And I realized there was like the extended Kennedy clan, including Senator Kennedy and a couple other you know, politicians, and I remember the, the governor of Louisiana, who was actually a friend of mine through work, through ABC News, was there, and and it was, you know, I don't know, his cousin, who was very down-to-earth, John, uh, but still, a few movie star, Melanie Griffith was there. I don't know how she ended She might have been a date of someone. <laughs> and, then, and then there was all of my extended family and Dutch uncles and aunts and cousins, and it was a beach wedding. It was a beautiful wedding under, you know, white tent, and it was very elegant and well done. But, you know, ultimately East Hampton Beach on a Saturday afternoon. And all of my cousins, like, <laughs> pretty much came wearing, like, sequin mini dresses. <laughs> <laughs> I <love> that. <laughs> so, you know, that big hair, painted nails, little sequin, like, there was a lot of sequins. No, <laughs> it was just no like, understatement oh, there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing understated at all. And it was fun, though. At that point, you know, I was amused by it, too. And I said, okay, you know, I'm cool. I'm fine with you. I'm cool with this. They're, you know, I, I love them. They're characters, and they were um, authentic, you know, and I like authentic people. And it sounds like um, Anthony did as well. It sounded like that's something that was, yeah, yeah a trait that he admired. Yeah. And it also yeah. sounds to me like the way you're that you're describing it that he also very much admired your work ethic. He always thought I worked harder than he did. We he talked so- hard, but you know, I wish I could summon that work ethic a little bit more now. But um, you know, I'm getting yeah. older. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's there. It's probably just different yeah. kinds of work than maybe you know in the beginning of your career where you're really you know you're you're it's a lot of grit, you know. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of learning curve and research and very fact-based, fact-based, facts, 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 stories, facts, facts, facts. You know, this is different. This is, this reality thing is different. Although I'm still writing, you know, I'm finishing or halfway into my third book, which is, which has been, been nice. I'm kind of starting to get back to that. I took a break for a couple of years while I was doing the show. Are you writing another novel? No, no, gosh, I wouldn't put myself through that again. Not now, but maybe, you know, maybe later, you know, when I'm 80, I'm writing a book of a book of essays, which is nice for me because Mm -hmm. it goes back a little bit more to journalism where, you know, where it's like more bite-sized 
subjects. And then, you know, I explore, I'm just in the middle of writing an essay about called Marilyn and me about um, my deep relationship with Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> wow. We're looking forward to reading it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have an essay about the reality show. I have an essay about all sorts of different things. My life in LA, I have an essay about Liam Neeson. You know, it's called In Search of Liam, but it's not really about him. He's sort of the metaphor for the perfect man, In Search of the Perfect Man. So that was fun. I was just tinkering yeah. with that a little while. But yeah, so I'm sort of trying to balance between the show, which takes a lot of my energy and my mental health, balance between that and, and the energy I need to have to write, which is a lot more introspective. Mm, that makes sense. One is so out and one is so in. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. The energy of the show does not allow for any sort of introspection. So right. it's, it's hard to do both at the same time. And even when we're not filming, there's just a lot of noise in my head about about it. What's going on? Well, Carol, as we wrap up here, it's, it's been terrific speaking with you. Um, and we're very grateful you've given us some of your time. I do have one question that I'd love to kind sure. of end on. Since I'm one myself, I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell me how an Italian-American girl from Suffren gets to where you've gotten in life. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, re- relentless, relentlessness. I, I, did, I interviewed um, a state senator once from Pennsylvania, Steve Friend, his name was, and he won time after time again, very tough races. And I was interviewing him for a story we were doing on abortion. And it was a very, very tough race. And he was he was behind in the polls. And I remember him saying that what gets him through is relentlessness, as he defined it, is the ability to come back time and time again and see your opponent gives up his willingness to resist. <laughs> and I kind of feel like that's what it is. Like you just have to come back time and time and time again and persevere and not take no for an answer. And also, and I say this in my memoir, don't listen to the people around you, the little voices in your head and the people around you who may be well-meaning or maybe not, who kind of say, you know, who do you think you are? You know, who do you think you are? I heard that a lot when I was first started working at ABC or wanting to work at ABC and not knowing how. So, you know, the young girl from Suffren and I was like, well, who do you think you are? You know, you're just, you know, some girl from Suffren. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. That's who I am. I'm a girl from Suffren. <laughs> nice. There you go. Thank you. I love that advice and I take it to heart. Thank you. Oh, good. Well, <laughs> good luck with, good luck with everything that you do. Thank you're you, off to Carol. a good start. Carol DeFalco, Radswill. Thank you for being a guest here on the Italian American podcast. Thank you. It is now time for the Italian-American story segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, and we try to play a recording or a story from one of our listeners or our own relatives, or even read something that a listener submitted. And remember, you can go to ItalianAmericanPodcast.com, and on the right side, there's a red button where you can click it, and then you can tell your story. You can record for up to three minutes, or you can do it as many times as you want if you need more than three minutes. In today's segment, we're doing something a little bit different, actually. Since my trip that I told everyone about in episode 23 kind of recapped my six-week trip to Italy to connect with relatives, I've been getting so many emails from listeners saying, I want to go to Italy, I don't know where to start. And because we have Select Italy as a sponsor for the show, we reached out to them and asked if they would do something around initial trip planning. So you're about to hear a short interview with Beth Rubin from Select Italy. 
just to tell you a little bit about Beth, while finishing a degree in fine arts at the University of Georgia, Beth joined their study abroad program in Cortona, Italy. Immediately following her second go-around in Cortona, she returned to Chicago with a passion for all things Italian and no interest in her career in publishing. Within days of her return, she met Andrea Sertoli, and as it seemed their interests were mutual, she began her long career with Select Italy in 2000. Beth has been with the company ever since. She makes sure to travel to Italy frequently to stay in the loop on new hotels and services available, as well as to make sure of our tried and true products are just that. So again, you're going to hear Beth dig into some initial planning for Italy, and then we'll come back here at the end and close this one out. All right, Beth, welcome to the Italian American podcast. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. So I thought we'd invite Beth on just to give us some some of these initial planning tips that you can do, Beth, uh, based on your experience. If someone wants to go to Italy, where do you start? There's a few things to think about um, when you start planning a trip to Italy. One of the things that you want to consider are the dates. One of the things you want to consider is where you want to go. And the other thing is really the budget. And then you're going to choose and start doing everything based on those three items. If you say, I want to go to the Amalfi Coast in July and I have $100 a night to spend, you're going to run into a lot of problems. You know, you kind of want to be informed and be ready to make changes if need be to get what you want for what you want to spend. But picking the dates obviously is the most important thing and anything can be, for the most part, worked around that. You know, dates and budget and with Italy, it's amazing. You could choose to go anywhere or say, I don't know where I want to go. I just want to go to that country. And there's so many interesting things to see and do. So you gave us three main points there, the dates, the location, and the budget. Let's start with the dates. Talk to us about dates. I understand that some of you may be limited a little bit by the school year and your kids in school, but just let's talk in general, Beth, about times of the year, what you recommend. Times of the year are very interesting. I mean, the classic trip is to go in the summer, family or not family, you know, it's crowded from the end of May until the beginning of September. It's very crowded because pretty much anyone can travel those three months, June, July, August. Everything's open, which is a perk. Things that are seasonal, like the coastal areas, Cinque Terre, Amalfi Coast, things like that, Sicily, some of that is closed from November to March. So you have to consider coastline and summer things like that. But if you're not interested in coast and you have any time of year, there are so many interesting things that you can see and do. In particular, right now, we've spent a lot of time talking about off-season travel. And off-season travel is November, March, basically. The world is your oyster, except for the coastline. (laughs) Um, You know, the interior is your oyster if you're willing to travel in that off-season, not just because you may get some lower rates, but because you're going to completely avoid crowds. You're going to find people that are not beaten down <laughs> by all the tourists. You know, they're, they're happy to see you and they're happy to talk to you. And they're in that low season lull where they, they don't remember all the, the people beating down their doors or all the lines and this and that. So everybody's just friendly, helpful, which is not to say they aren't during the high season, but there's a frenetic energy to it during those summer months. And especially August, I can say, was very crowded because that's when I know when in Europe they all take their vacations. and Exactly. So now let's talk about location. I mean, obviously, Italy is a beautiful country, the entire country. There's so many different amazing things to see. But 
a lot of our listeners are maybe going to go to places where their family might have been from if you're doing research, and that's wonderful. Sure. But Beth, talk to us about maybe some of the locations that are out there that people don't hear about all the time, like Rome or some of these major cities. Right. Okay, so we call it the big three, Rome, Florence, and Venice, and those are great, and everyone should see them. But the, the, the second and third trips where you get to go somewhere different is where it gets really interesting. And some people will be doing it like you did for heritage purposes. I deal with a lot of people that are going to, usually it's Southern Italy, to find their roots. Because a lot of Southern Italians emigrated to the U.S. So um, things like Sicily, Calabria, Puglia, and even Campania, which is where Naples and the Amalfi Coast are. Those are big on heritage and really big with interesting things to do, even if you don't have family from there. I personally, and unfortunately not, I don't think I'm even 0.01% Italian. <laughs> All of my family is from Northern and very Eastern Europe, but I love Southern Italy. I think it's some of, some of the best places I've seen. Sicily is fabulous. It's a great place to go, even if it's a first trip, because they've got so much interesting archaeology, and you know they've got all these Greek and Roman temples there. So there's tons of great things, and of course, great food and wine. Then you've got Mount Etna, so you get these volcanic wines that are great. And the food in Sicily is very particular; it's very specific. So that's a great destination that's quote unquote off the beaten path. And then, like I said, some some of the rest of southern Italy. A big one in, over the last couple of years is Puglia which is that heel of the boot. The spur all the way down through the heel is what's called Puglia. Bari, people have heard of Bari. Lots of people's families are from Bari. El Barobello, which is um, where they have those um, conical-shaped truly houses, which are very attractive, gorgeous landscaping. And it's very flat down there as well. And they they make the olive oil there. So they have these thousands-year-old olive trees. And uh, it's, it's quite an art form down there. It's very interesting. Half my family's from Campania, half's from Sicily. So I was in those locations, and you're right, it's a different experience. I mean, you can go to the Rome, and you can see all the the big monuments and all the special places there, like the Vatican and, and everything. And then you can go to a place like Campania, where it's just rolling beautiful mountains and farms, and you can, if you're lucky enough to be able to connect with your family or other people there, you can have a different experience. And if you have enough time, you may be able to do a couple of them in one trip, which we were lucky enough to do. There's really cool things up in the north, and my particular favorite is the Piedmont region, which is the northwest. Turin is the capital. That's where they had the Olympics in 2006. That is a great, quote-unquote, off-season visit. For them, it's still high season, but November is when they have the white truffle. So the white truffle is a culinary gem. It's like a, a mushroom, but way better. And those are harvested end of October through early December. So while it's high season there you're seeing something really cool. And they have their wine harvest at the end of September, and they have the best wines in the world come out of the Piedmont region, the Barolo, the Barbaresco, the Barbera. You make a good point, though. There is a lot in the north, and I mean all over Italy. Obviously, there's different gems that you can find, and a couple there that Beth highlighted are very interesting and maybe something you can check out, especially in the off season, because it is, if you can go in those off times, it sounds like there's a lot of benefits to doing that, which is oh, definitely. which is awesome. And I would assume, Beth, your last point of budget would tie into kind of the dates more or less, right? Yes. Yes. In fact, I was going to say, I flew last fall in, at the end of November, I went to actually Venice and Piedmont. And the airfare was so ridiculously inexpensive because I was flying at the end of November and it was like 600 bucks for an international air ticket. That's half the price of what you're going to pay in the summer. Wow. So if budget is an issue, that's definitely something to consider. 
That's great. And I guess just along those lines with weather, I know it's different from north to south, but in general, I mean, I'm assuming it doesn't really get terribly cold. There was some definite chill in December up north, but not like here in Chicago where I am. I mean, I was like, ah, this is nothing. Let me get my shorts out, you know? (laughs) But I mean, I would say 40s, low 50s maybe. Okay. Yeah. I would say that if you're going to visit one of the volcanoes when you're there to bring some kind of a yes. windbreaker or pants, because I, I didn't, and I was up at the top and it's really windy up there. It is. And it, it's, it can get really cold. I was at the top of Mount Etna Thanksgiving one year. Wow. And there's snow. I got snow up there. <laughs> yeah. All right. So if you're thinking about planning a trip to Italy, which I know many of you are, You've got these pillars to work around, the dates, the location, your budget, which the budget ties heavily into the dates, of course, as Beth described. So, Beth, let's talk a little bit about Select Italy here for a minute. We're we're really happy to have Select Italy as a sponsor of the Italian American Podcast. And they have tools and resources to help you with your planning. And, Beth, maybe you can mention some of the things that are available for the listeners that they can go on your website and check out. Sure. So we have a website, selectitaly.com. And we offer two ways of planning trips. One is for the do-it-yourselfer who wants our hands on everything. And you can just go in and pick, you know, some museum tickets so you can skip the line, like a cooking class here, a walking tour there, and just individually pick all the things that you want for the times that you want. Or if you are more interested in having someone take care of it for you, an expert who knows exactly what to do and when the best time to visit something is and, you know, the best hotel and this and that, then you can look at our custom travel planning, which we have five people on staff, and they will fully customize from soup to nuts everything from the moment you land in Rome or Venice or wherever until you get back on the plane on your way home. I know for many of you, it's going to be a once in a lifetime trip. You do want to maximize your time there for sure, because it is valuable and you want to make sure that you get to see some of the things that you may not even know about that exist there. Mm-hmm. And maybe even some of the regions that Beth mentioned, a couple of things that you know you may not even have thought about in certain parts of Italy. So. Thank you, Beth, for coming on and kind of sharing the advice. I know you have a lot of experience in travel to Italy. Of course, we always link to Select Italy's website, but we're going to link to some specific parts of it that maybe you can check out and that can help you to try to think about your initial trip planning. And of course, you can contact them right through the website if you want to get some assistance with your next trip to Italy. Beth Rubin from Select Italy. Beth, thank you for taking some time here to come on the Italian American podcast. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that short segment. And feel free to email me, Anthony, at ItalianAmericanCentral.com with any of your questions. Like I said, I recap my trip on episode 23, but I'm always willing to help listeners try to guide you along if I can or point you in the right direction. And before I kick it over to Dolores to close this one out, just a little reminder of some of Select Italy's services. Everything you need for optimum travel to Italy is possible with Select Italy. Their helpful travel planners in Chicago, New York, and Shanghai are always ready to give the best advice on when and where to visit. while the Florence support staff is there to help should you need anything while you are in Italy. The company recently expanded its offerings and services to the Balkans with the launch of Select Croatia. Visit selectitaly.com and selectcroatia.com. All right, Dolores, take us out. So, Anthony, I just want to let listeners know that if you haven't already subscribed to our newsletter, now is a great time to do so because when you do sign up, you're going to receive our video, How to Jar Tomatoes, along with a more detailed PDF to actually take you through the steps. And 
This is a fun video put together from my family recently jarring the tomatoes. And of course, it's a very beloved Italian-American tradition. In addition, this is the first launch of other exclusive videos and audio that we're giving access only to our listeners. So it's a great time to join. If you want to do so, visit ItalianAmericanPodcast.com and click on the Join Us tab. I've never had the opportunity to do the tomatoes, to jar the tomatoes. Dolores did most of the work on the video. I just watched it. And I got to tell you, I did not realize how much work it is. Um, it's a tremendous <laughs> amount of work. So much work. Dolores did a great job with the video. The video is really literally a step-by-step -step guide on how to jar tomatoes with all the pictures. You know, you're seeing people doing it step-by-step -step, and there's a PDF that goes along with it. But, you know, I was really excited to watch the video because I wanted to do it. But now I'm having second thoughts. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you just got to do it with friends and family. And, and, you know, it doesn't feel like hard work at the end of the day. Right. All right. So you can find us on social media. On Instagram, we're at Italian American. On Twitter, we're at Ital American, I-T-A-L American. And we're on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. Va bene. Va bene.